We are back. Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under, Melbourne, Australia. All things are going well down here. Beautiful day outside as I record this, and life is good. Another good episode coming up, but before we get to that... Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast. Click on that subscribe button now so you don't miss out on the number one podcast for aero modeling in the world. Or at least that's what I reckon. Uh, so get on board and whilst you're in the mood for subscribing, don't forget our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channels as well. So get on board with the good thing. Uh, special guest today is Rob Barbuto. He'll be coming up later. Uh, Guy that's achieved a lot in aero modeling, actually, as you will find out. But uh, before we get to that, let's take a look at what's been on my mind. Well, what has been on my mind this week? Oh, look, I've been so busy with work, which is a good thing and a bad thing uh, that uh, I have been busy. Um, you know, I run a marketing business, Sill Marketing sillmarketing.com.au if you need any marketing work hit me up uh but i uh i made a mistake i have i'm honest enough to say i made a mistake as i record this it's, it's a sunday afternoon and here in melbourne all i can say is perfect flying conditions perfect flying conditions i have been trying to make sure i take sundays off with uh, my busy work schedule into putting about six days at the moment but uh We've got a busy week, bit of travel coming up as well. Uh, but I mucked up in that I thought the weather wasn't going to be that great for flying today, and I haven't been out for a fly for, for a long, long time now, and it was perfect. Very, very disappointed in myself. Uh, when I woke up and looked outside and, and there was not a breath of wind, I didn't have my stuff charged, I just wasn't organised, had some other things I had to do that got in the way. So anyway, I've spent most of the day keeping myself busy and not trying to think about how I should have been at the flying club having a bit of a fly. So hopefully you got out there for a fly. But um, whilst I was out, I was actually, or today that is, I went on my electric scooter. I've got this electric scooter, which is cool. And I was doing a bit of a range test. And um, so I was just cruising along and I had uh, my headphones in listening to a podcast and it was a podcast around uh, motorbikes and whatever. And I was, uh, they had a, a guy on that was talking about how he produces content for off-road motorbike riding and has been a very successful Australian guy. And um, he said how he couldn't do what he does without the support of, of the industry. And it got me thinking as I'm scooting around on my little scooter, looking like a bit of a dork, but having a you know, nice relaxing time. And uh, I thought, yeah, what you know, role the role of industries in hobby, hobby-based kind of stuff. And in that motorcycling world, um, I've done a little bit of work with it. I did a bit of work with Honda Motorcycles earlier in the year. That they have a vested interest in supporting the hobby because they know that they'll get sales and they, they do a lot of support with different marketing outlets. And it's something that we don't really see in our hobby of aero modeling, whether it be here in Australia or worldwide, that you can't sort of say that there's one manufacturer or hobby outlet that's doing you know, really out there, except for maybe Horizon Hobby and their brand's a very big business and they you know, do their big air meet and stuff like that and make a bit of investment in their content and that kind of thing. But 
outside of themselves and the support that they give to other content creators or other media outlets is generally not that great. We, you know, we've seen here in Australia, there are really no magazines left. The, the industry, you can't, oh, I was one of the last ones. Um, I think I was the last magazine. Uh, there's another one out there that sort of comes and juice and drabs, but uh but yeah, I was one of the last ones, and the reason why I stopped was um, pretty much lack of industry support, and and I'm that concerns me not personally from a financial perspective because I I can make money elsewhere, but when the industry stops uh, supporting their hobby, or sorry, let me rephrase that when the industry stops supporting the activities that involve their products, um, we often see this sort of decline in momentum, and we know that our hobby sort of started to be a bit on decline participation wise very very tricky era that we are in um the kids nowadays have got different interests um different things that they can do computer screens have changed the game really in the internet uh but it just puts more pressure on the industry to keep keep more and help support the activities to keep things keep things going and it's been on my mind for quite quite a number of years. And one of the reasons why I started this flat out RC thing was to give the industry channels to um, connect with the audience because we know that people like consuming these podcasts and videos and things like that. You know, my podcast numbers, especially over the last, say, three or four months, have, have probably doubled. Uh, and that's on the back of just me making the effort, no support from the industry, that kind of stuff. When I approach the industry about supporting what I might do, then um, they're reluctant. And the, the argument in Australia was, oh, we're just going to do our own thing digitally. The problem is that they don't have the expertise and the nous and the reach half the time to get the message out to enough people. So other content creators around the world, it's very, very hard to produce our modeling content without uh, the support of the industry because we need product to use, we need a flow of product, or we need... You know, something to talk about half the time. Um, you know, because if I go into my own catalogue of model airplanes, if I had to shoot videos, they'd be the videos series would be done and dusted in maybe thirteen episodes, and it'd be pretty boring. Um, and so, I suppose I think that I'm a bit disappointed in the industry in that they're not playing a very active role in what's happening you know say here in australia we've got some great guys you know we've got mike o'reilly who's been uh, just a a massive stalwart and a, and a good um supporter of mine over the flat out rc journey um outside of sort of that model flight kind of realm there ain't much happening uh i think that people are reining in the spending and what that just means is that keeping the hobby relevant keeping the, uh, keeping eyeballs on it um, spreading that 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 word uh, is a bit of a challenge. The other players in that sort of industry side is really the associations, and I haven't seen anything. Uh, to the two major organisations out there, we've got the MAAA here in Australia and AMAS. Not seen anything. Nothing. A uh, bit of social media content, but there's a lot of that. It's just some generic stuff. But they're not doing anything, and even even though everyone's worried about where numbers are going, I don't see a lot of action. Anyway, it's enough of my acting. Just my thoughts. Interested to know what you know, what you think. Send me a message. I'll share the comments. 
get onto the flatoutrc.com.au website, fill out the contact form. It's a good way to do it. Or send me a message on Facebook or Instagram and uh, love to hear what your thoughts are about the state of the industry and their role in our hobby called aeromodeling. My favourite time of the podcast because it's guest time and this week's guest is Rob Barbuto. But Rob uh, is a guy coming out of Melbourne, Australia, so my hometown. I seem to have a lot of guests for my hometown um, and that is because, I don't know, they either know me and they're more inclined to say yes to come on, uh, even though not everybody wants to come on. And so I'm, I'm trying to get a mixture of guests uh, getting hard. To be honest, I keep on saying that. It's getting hard. If, if anybody's got any suggestions from people from around Australia or internationally, send them through to me. That'd be great. But um, And I'll try to make contact with them. But Rob Barbuto, uh, I first heard his name many years ago, uh, or seeing his name in magazines, and he has had an extensive career as a competitive RC heli pilot back in the day of, you know, that precision style of flying in the, um, in the 90s, I'd say, maybe into the 80s. Uh, so very long history in flying um, model helicopters and a flew fixed wing at the same time, but uh, competed, you know, at world championship levels. Uh, and then uh, nowadays uh, in his retirement, he's really quite active in that um, aerobatic IMAX scene. So we've got a lot of ground to cover with Rob. Uh, so let's just get into it. Here's my chat with Rob Barbuto. Well, it's my pleasure this week to bring to you a chat with a good guy, Rob Barbuto. Rob, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Well, as I was just telling you, this this podcast is all about sharing your aeromodeling story, and I know we are in for a few stories to be told in the next hour or so. So first of all, how did you get involved in uh, aeromodeling? Where did it all begin? Yeah, I didn't come from an aeromodelling family, so but uh, we had a trip to New Zealand um, one year, and on the way back, I think we were flying out of Auckland, New Zealand, and in those days, um, there was an aeromodelling club there, and they used to fly in between commercial flights and, and light aircraft flights. I thought, oh, gee, that's a gee, I'd, I, because way back when I was in the sixth grade or first form, they always Look at the uh, RC model magazines from England, you know, those old ones you get. Yeah, yeah. And um, I thought, oh, gee, I'd like to have a go at that, you know. Yeah, and um, so when we got back to Australia, I think maybe only one or two weeks later, um, I found a model shop and it happened to be Flightline Models in um, in South Melbourne there and brought with Brian Green and uh, sort of wandered into the shop and said, I like to fly uh, aircraft at that stage. I hadn't been into helicopters and... Uh, my first aircraft was a SIG Cadet, and uh, we lived in a one-bedroom flat, and I built the SIG Cadet on the kitchen table in a one-bedroom flat, and um, and then um, then I joined the Marks Club, out at the Marks Club, and then Brian Green came out, and he uh, was teaching me to fly. And um, and then, um, but that didn't last too long, because back then, there was a big, huge tree by the side of the, um, where, where the gates were in, and a, a big blackbird attacked it, and... and um, and uh, it set it in, yeah. So I lost that model, but uh, so I was a bit um, downhearted about that. So I went back to the model shop, and um, and lo and behold, there was these nice sparkling helicopters for sale. So that's where I, my um, so that's where I got into helicopters. My first um, helicopter was a Cavan Alouette, forty size fixed pitch, and uh, <clears throat> I um, yeah took it home, assembled it because I didn't know how to fly helicopters. 
at all. So um, a lot of broken blades and and um, you know swearing and cursing and uh, maybe over twelve months I think I tried to fly it. And, uh, in the end I thought oh this is too difficult, so I put it underneath the bed for about another twelve months or so. And then I happened to be at Hawthorne um, Hobbies when uh, Eddie Lowe was um, was in charge of the shop there, and he says oh look I know a guy that um, flies helis. His name's Max Tandy. Oh, and yeah. um, he said, just give him a ring and, um, yeah, he'll set you straight. And um, so I eventually did and uh, I worked, I think it was, was broken and I, um, and I um, repaired it. I didn't actually go to bed because it was a, a state championships in Geelong. And all night, worked on it all night, got it all proper, proper and um, we went out there, proceeded and watched the, um, the, champ- well, the state championships. And um, after I said, oh, my name's Rob Barbuto, you know, um, yeah, Max Tandy, mate, I, I rang you, you know, could you test my model? And lo and behold, he just like took it off and it just hovered there and that one was hooked. <laughs> and uh, from then on, I, um, I, I, yeah, became a really good friend of Max and um, Lane Tandy. And um, we used to fly White Street in Morneale, just in, in Oval there. There was probably about half a dozen or so guys and I learned to fly there. So that was my um, very early experience in, in, in helis. And, oh, God, I mean, I would have done... A couple of kilometres a day walking around just following the thing because we had no gyros back then and, and it's all fixed pitch and everything else. So it was pretty difficult. Oh, I, I suppose it probably took about three months to learn to hover. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. Um, so we're we talking about early 80s here? Um, yeah, 70s actually. Okay, in the 70s. Cause in the 70s, yeah. I had another guest on um, uh, Michael Timms um, and he talked about following the heli around the paddock kind of thing. And it's in, yeah, it's an exactly. interesting concept, that that concept of hopping the heli around and following it, walking around behind it, because now we don't really see that. You know, with helis, we stand in one spot, and or most of us probably learned how to fly helis on simulators now before we get out with the real thing. But uh, Yeah, exactly. It, like, it, it does fascinate me because, as you know, you've seen the development of helis through the years. Oh yes. What, yeah. what were they like? Like I've heard that they actually were reasonably reliable. But what was your experience like with these early helis? Um, they were reasonably reliable, just just harder to fly, you know, because you didn't have uh, most of them were fixed pitch, you know, so you had to rev it up and the blades had to rev up and then going lift and take off and then there was always that delay, so you don't have that instant um, uh, input when you have a, like a collective pitch machine like you do nowadays, you know, um, and in. Back then, we used to make a big paddle that you'd stuck out the back of the tail rotor just as a weather vane. So you'd always sort of um, hop along the field into wind. Um, but you just gradually got it up and, and, you know, you'd stay longer in the air and longer in the air to the point where you, um, you, you could actually hover it. But back then, you couldn't, you couldn't fly it. I mean, if you couldn't come back into a hover, then there's, there's no, no sense in trying to do circuits and stuff like that. But, um, no, they, they were reasonably stable. But as I say, we had no gyros back then, so the tail was, you know, whip around all over the place. Um, but apart from that, no, they're reasonably reliable. And then we started to get gyros. I mean, the first gyro I did have was a Kavan, which was an old one, um, which which is a gyro, you know, with a motor spinning with spinning two um, brass discs on either side, you know. But um, back then it was only a pot, and then you actually had to um, get into your servo and actually um, wire, wire three servos back into the pot and servo, and all that did is just alter the servo pot inside, you know. And um, so it was only just heading. It wasn't. It was only just a yaw control. So it wasn't like you'd lock it in or anything like that. You know. So you still had to 
um, uh, control the tail completely. But no, they were reasonably, back then they were reasonably, before that, I mean, mine was an alouette, but before that they had um, humming, um, humming, um, hummings and um, doves and uh, briefs and all that. And a lot of them were just uh, plywood plates with, um, with a plywood, plywood, um, where your main shaft would sit on, you know, just a plywood um, um, shaft on it, and then um, and just a um, a flapping head, you know, just with one piece of uh, uh, music wire as the, the as the flapping part of the the head. So they were very very hard to fly. Yeah, I could imagine. But um, but yeah, mine was reasonably when I got into it. Mine was actually probably reasonably sophisticated. Yeah, in so, those days. So you said it was about three months before you could um, sort of hover yeah. the hover the, the the heli. Yep, yep, yep. It was about three months, Saturdays, Sundays, every weekend, rain or shine, I'd be out there practising. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it was a long time. And what was the aim back then? Because we, now we see all these RC helis that are, you know, like um, dragonflies flying around, you know, flying 3D and stuff like that. What was what was what what were your sights set on in flying helis back then? Well, I mean... We, we, our sights weren't set very high, but that stage we weren't thinking about, you know, there's no competitions or anything like that at that stage. But no, it was just purely Bambler, fly the heli and, and fly circuits basically and be confident with the helicopter. Um, that was the main aim. I mean, there was no aerobatics, back, well, basically no aerobatics back then. But yeah, that was the main aim, just really to get a control of the helicopter um, because they were so hard. Well, when I say so hard, they were... Long, I mean, I've seen guys, same sort of helicopters, do it in um, a couple of weeks, you know, but um, obviously I was a slow learner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if, if, you know, if people out there haven't flown a heli, then you don't know how complex it can be. But it's, it's one of those things, I, I started flying helis in 2007 and um, that sort of got me back into the hobby because the concept of I don't need a runway, I can just put it on the ground and it can vertical take off, vertical land, there's, and there's something... Something about an RC heli that gets the juices flowing for me. Like I oh, love, I love the look of them. Um, the only challenge I always had is that I never really fully relaxed flying them, and that mm. started to 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 sort of concern me. But um, how many people back then were into helis? Um, probably when I started, there was probably about where I used to where we used to fly. There would be probably about um, eight or nine, maybe. That'd be about the most uh, that would fly, um, but you'd get sort of you know four or five people nearly every weekend come out and fly. As I say, we just flew in a in a paddock in between um, factories yeah. in in, uh, in White Street in Morneale, and um, and but it was a very social thing too. You know, it was great. I mean, I think there was a, a one of the first nationals I attended. I think it was Goulburn, the thirty third national, and I was looking up there, um, and and one of the their quotes in the in the in the flyer they had was um, uh, flying helis is like a balloon with the marble on top, only harder. <laughs> so so yeah. back then, I suppose it was a bit like that. But um, yes, yeah, so and then it, obviously just a slow progression for me. And you were telling me off air that uh, you you were involved. You were one of the founding members of the um, was it Melbourne? Yeah, Melbourne Radio Control Helicopter Club, which still goes today down at the uh, the school. Yeah. Down here in Melbourne, how did uh, like it's always interesting to think about what was happening for you for for you know you and your mates to start a club. What what was that process like? Like what what triggered that? 
Um, it was just, I think, we it was just a discussion between a, a few of the guys that was down, it was down, uh, used to fly with, and and um, there was a national um, uh, national radio control helicopter club in in America, which uh, we ended up being affiliated with, and um, then there was talks about competitions and things like that. So um, we decided to form a club, just obviously like most clubs form, for like-minded people to um, to fly helis. <clears throat> so that was. Um, in 1987, that we uh, formed the club, and um, and then started flying down at St Leonard's College. Yeah, that's right. So um, yeah, which is I say they still fly today. But it was just like-minded people getting together, wanting to um, have a fly, and then um, and then maybe compete in some competitions. And obviously, you, you sort of compete with one another, and you get better and better and better. That was the idea of the club, and a, and a social thing as well, you know. Okay. Well, the competition was all around sort of precision flying, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, we had um, yeah had two or three. Levels. We had basic, intermediate, and then F three C. And um, and uh, I, I don't know how I started. I mean, it was just maybe my competition nature, you know. Then we just started to um, practice and and um, and fly. I, I don't know whether I jumped from yeah maybe I did beginners, intermediate, but basically jumped sort of straight into three F three C, which is precision flying and. Um, and back then it was it was it was three or four aero manoeuvres and uh, four or five hovering manoeuvres, uh, but that um, but no that was um, that's how it sort of started. Just like-minded people wanting to get together and compete. I remember seeing these uh, uh, F what is this F three C you said? Yeah, F three C. Yeah, the F, I remember seeing the F three C helis in magazines. I used to love reading Airborne magazine through the eighties. Absolutely yeah, loved yeah. it. You know, we'd go to the news agents and say to my parents, "Oh, can I get a copy of Airborne?" Anyway, um. Uh, and you'd see these these helis there, and they always looked. They had fuselages and things like that. What I never asked this question. I literally just thought of it. What what were you looking for in helis for precision flying competition? Like, why were they? Did they have fuselages? Why? What was different about them to say a, a normal everyday recreational heli? Well, like a pod and boom. We used to call them pod and boom helicopters. Yeah. Um, Base, I suppose uh, aerodynamically they fly um, they fly um, better in aerobatic manoeuvres, um, and uh, and that's probably really the only reason. I mean, there's no other reason, and um, they look good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically, but um, yeah, I suppose it, during aerobatics, the uh, if you have a nice sleek fuselage, they fly a bit faster, and um, and the manoeuvres are a bit uh, smoother and a bit cleaner. That's the only reason. I mean, all of the um, yeah, all of the light, later ones when we did the world champs and stuff, they're beautiful, sleek, black shark bodies. You know, very, 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 very aerodynamic and very fast. What about under the bodies? Were, were they pretty stock, or you know, were they modified for, for, for that competition? No, they were um, no, pretty well, completely stock. Um, and all of them had just undercarriage skids underneath, but um, they were mainly they were all pretty well stock. Um, there was nothing much that was um, out of the ordinary, I don't think, really. Yeah. And uh, there, you know, there were some, some you know, well-known names that were competing around that era. Who were some of the uh, the major guys you were, you were competing against here in Australia? Um, way, well, way, way back in the early day, I mean, there was Max. Max used to compete, Max Tandy. I, I regard him as probably the, the father of helicopters in Australia. He, he uh, basically got the whole helicopter scene Running in Australia, you know, he's a very, very smart man, and um, and there's Nick Chaboffi who actually who started after I was he actually was started flying before I did, probably about twelve months before, 
But then um, he went on to uh, uh, form NC Helicopters in Q. So he had a business there. But um, so there was Max, um, uh, Max Tandy, there was Nick Chaboffi, myself, and um, way back then, there was um, John Westles, who was a good friend of ours. We went to the couple of world champs with. Um, Barry Hendy. There was um, a couple of guys from New South Wales. Um, no, the name has escaped me, actually. But, yeah, there was probably uh, something about a, maybe six or seven uh, F3C flies, certainly down in Mel- certainly down in Victoria, anyway. Was Mike Farman there? They were dotted around. Um, Mike Farman came in a lot later, probably in the 90s. Um, uh, but there, and then, because uh, Mike got a lot better too, like Mike went to a world championship. But um, no, no, so he got he, he got better than me in the end. But um, no, no, he's a very good flyer. But he came back in, well, maybe 10 or 15 years later before yeah. we started, uh, after we started flying. And so you mentioned you went to the world champs, and I'm always interested about people that travel for their yeah. hobby and the world champs. So you, you've been to what, two world champs, haven't you? Where, where were they? Yeah, we went to. Um, we went to the first one was 1989 in um, Fentress Naval Air Force Base in Chesapeake, Virginia. Um, that was our first one, and uh, fortunately, we had a benefactor that um, we had, so we had some sponsorship as far as the airfares and stuff. So um, that made it a lot easier for us to uh, get there. But the interesting thing with that one, I think the week before, so that week we had our last practice at the, down at the, the MRCH Flying Club, and. Um, I threw a blade bolt. In those days, we just used one three-millimetre blade bolt or four-millimetre blade bolt in the head, in the rotor head. And, um, and I was doing a slow roll, and halfway through the slow roll, it exploded in the air. Mm. So that was my number one competition model. Um, so I lost that one, and then I, one of the members in the club, I had the same model I had, and um, he lent me just a pod and boom one. We had um, um, bodies on ours. They were... Um, Especially made all the quicksilver bodies from um, miniature aircraft, and um, so we we bundled all that stuff over, got got over there, and then um, we were having a practice day. Those days were still on thirty six or forty meg, and uh, not very controlled, I don't think, with the peg and the keyboards. But um, I was flying my backup model, and um, another guy from Switzerland or Austria or something turned on and shot me down. Oh, no. So I lost my two um, A1 and A sort of two models and I just had this pod and boom backup that I bought over. So I had to compete with that one. So a bit behind the eight ball. So, yeah, so we didn't, um, we, I didn't fare too well at that one either. So um, unfortunately, but uh, we got through it. I mean, obviously we do. But you know, it was great. I mean, there was all over the world, but, but the, um, the standouts were the Japanese. I mean, they, they came first, second and third. They're just so professional. Um, very hard to compete against, um, you know, factory-backed companies and things like that. Um, but uh, no, that was great. It was um, about 40, uh, 40, 40, 60, I think that first one, 48 or something, 48 contestants from around the world. So that was, um, yeah, no, it was good. It was good fun. Very, very good at learning experience, that one. But um, but we, uh, in team placing, where we get the team placings? We came about eight to something in the team placing, which was good. I came. Uh, 22nd, but uh, out of 41, uh, no, there was a bit, I think there was 41 competitors. I got the 22nd, that particular one. John Wessels um, was a little bit behind me, and uh, our other flyer was Jeff Woodward from New South Wales. He came a couple of places down from that again, but uh, no, it was a good experience. So then you went, so you went again. What was the next one? Yeah, well, the next one happened to be in Australia, which was good. 
So that was Wangaratta. <laughs> yeah, 1991. So we didn't have to travel this time. But, and, and fortunately, back then, um, we got sponsored by JR Radio and, um, and uh, Kyosho Helicopters. So we basically fly, well, so we flew the Concept 60s um, with a Jet Ranger body on them. Uh, Wangaratta, but um, but the only problem is we'd go out and practice and come back and spend three hours repairing them. Oh, really? They weren't a very yeah. They were, I mean they were nice, nice flying helicopters, just very very high maintenance. So um, so uh, that was uh, that was that was a great time. You, you know, you get to meet all the um, different models from all the different um, genres. You know, F three A, F three D pylon, um, you name it. I mean, all the, all the um, names you see in the magazines are all there. Yeah, okay. it was very, very good. Yeah, but that was um, yeah, luckily. And then um, I think uh, then the next one was, well, I think the next one was Austria. I think nineteen ninety three. But I made the team, and I was second on the team. But uh, that never eventuated, so we never got to go to a, another world champs. But because uh, you had to, um, I think to qualify back then was you had to place in a two nationals previous and a, maybe a state championship to get on the team. So that was they were awarded points for that, and then um, you were invited to go to the world champs by the MAAA back then. MAAA gave you about ten bucks for a you know t-shirt or something. That wasn't very well sponsored. I don't think it's too well sponsored today, is it? No, no. The uh, unfortunately, no. Yeah. Well, they 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 do provide some money, but it's not. You know, it's yeah. it's only sort of a token effort. I think more than anything because it's. It's expensive for some of these people to get their big models, the plane models and stuff like that. Um, no doubt, you know, travelling with a helis is a bit easier than travelling with a pattern plane or an aerobatic plane or the scale planes. Um, did you did did you have? How did you travel with the with the helis? Did you pull them apart? You know, pull the booms off them and that kind of thing? Or no, no, we um, you pulled mate, pulled the heads off and then uh, because you had to build a box that was big enough to take the whole fuselage length. So I think the first um, ones we built boxes, you know, wooden boxes. Um, so they were the, the, the same length as a heli, and then minus the head and everything else was sort of packed in that. Plus, uh, but then you, you were carrying two, so you'd get two in one box, uh, one up one way and one up the other way. And so we just built boxes and and box them up with foam and everything else like that. Um, so I don't know, they end up being what six foot long or something. Like that. Yeah. So the the freight charges for that sort of um, is fairly high, you know. So. Um, and as I say, transporting around, you know, these high cars when you get there, transport the models around and uh, and everything else. So, it, uh, yeah, it, 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 it gets quite expensive. It would, but the memories would be well worth it, I reckon. Oh, well, I, you know, before talking to you, I thought I'd better, better do some research. And, um, boy, have I got some mem- – oh, man, I just – stuff I haven't seen in years and years and years. I've got um, – yeah, just so much memorabilia from the world champs and state championships and uh, nationals and stuff like that, all badges and you know, knickknacks and stuff like that. You know, I went through it uh, last night actually, and and it was it was uh, an eye opener. All the stuff that I still had, <laughs> I never chuck anything out. That's my problem. I don't chuck models out either. Have you got any of those old helis? Um, no, unfortunately, no, the only um, heli I've still got from. Back then was one of my last ones, which was the Cold Alpha. Um, so I still have that, and uh, I've flown that a few times. I've got to get it out and um, pull the engine apart and re-clean it and do all that and put it all back together. No, I've still got one Colt um, Alpha, and I've got a couple of uh, electrics because after I had a hiatus for 10 years, I um, all of a sudden there was nitro. Uh, like when I was finished flying, it was uh, nitro, and then all of a sudden I turned around and it's all electric. Yeah, that's right. 
So that was a another like a learning. It's like basic learning uh, from beginning again. And what, what's 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 a kV and a motor and you know and all that sort of thing and lipo batteries. What are they? And yeah, so that was a big uh, learning curve when I got back into it again. The technology has changed. There's been a bit of resurgence with nitro models. That, you know, I know some yes, of the Avid Heli yes. flies have got. Um, I know at the club where we're a member, I see nitro nitro helis. Helis there. The uh, the electrics are a little bit cleaner, but um, yeah. Oh, I still like the I still like the nitros. It smells a bit good. Biased, probably, and it smells good. Yes, exactly right. Well, we used to run, I think, fifteen percent, twenty percent nitro, fifteen uh, percent oil, and uh, the rest methanol. You know, but they smoke like crazy. But uh, no, I do like flying nitro helis. Um, oh, I've never done. In fact, I've never done a um, uh, auto rotation with an um, electric helicopter. I'm too scared. I <laughs> 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 will a nitro, no problem. But but electric, no. Well, the um, so let's just pop, try to put some ages to this. Like, how old were you when you were going to the um, when you were competing at that top level in international competition? Uh, gee, um, so I was I started flying about 77, the first one, and I was about 21, 22 then. So, in 70, uh, when did I say 83? Um, or 89, I should say. Um, so how old would I have been? Um, you're about like, 27, 28. Yeah, something like, yeah, like around 20s. about yeah, 28. Yep, yep. That was would have been my first. I mean, I'd done quite a few um, nationals and obviously state titles and all that sort of thing before that, building up to that. But, yeah, probably about 28 when I first went to a world championship. Well, that's a pretty big commitment um, at that age because what we always know through all my chats with people on the podcast, especially the men, they drift away from the hobby sometimes in their twenties when they go and chase women and cars. Um, <laughs> so you must have had a, a strong passion for it. Oh, I lived and breathed it. Um, you know, I mean, I had a single garage in in, um, and I had all my stuff in there. But yeah, I just lived and breathed it every night of the week. I'd be out there uh, probably nearly every night of the week. Um, you know, till nine, ten o'clock at night, um, and then weekends, Saturday, Sunday, if the, if the weather was good, I'd be out there practicing. Um, and yeah, you know, I just lived and breathed it. Just lived and breathed it. Loved it, and um, did that for oh, oh, twenty odd years, I think. Yeah, well over twenty years. So you had a bit of a hiatus from the hobby. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, we, we um, I think I just got burnt out a bit. I mean, I, I spent that many years doing it, and um, and then as I, as I mentioned off here, that we we started off bird's eye films. And um, and we were doing that for about two years, and uh, I think I just got burnt out a bit, you know, with um, with Heli. So I just sort of drifted off. I didn't sell anything. I've still got all the stuff, and still still got the um, the uh, the machine that we used to do the filming with. But um, yeah, I just sort of drifted off and did other things, and then all of it, and then maybe for about ten years, and then I sort of drifted back into it again. And um, and and as I say, the passion comes back. Tell us a bit about the filming stuff because this is pre-drone era. Um, oh yeah, what? way part, yeah, way before that. That was in the early, um, uh, in the early nineties, very early nineties. And uh, yeah, well, we had um, uh, there was uh, two cinematographers that were doing um, filming, and they filmed a tourism ad down near the uh, Apostles, and they imported a guy from England that did filming from a helicopter, and apparently that went disastrously wrong. So um, they turned around and said, mate, we, we should be able to do this in Australia, surely. So um, the two guys, they contacted, I'm not too sure whether it was the, they contacted in AAA or somebody 
uh, uh, I can't remember now, but they said, oh, who's the cut two best flies in Australia? And uh, my name came up and John Wessel's name came up because he was um, competing with me and we sort of swapped places first, second or, you know, things like that. And um, so they contacted us and said, look, mate, we, we did this thing that went disastrously wrong. We got him from England, the cost of fortune. Do you reckon we could do the same thing? And we said, well, yeah, I suppose we could. And then um, and then they had a film camera. It was an Arri Flex 11B, I think, which is about six kilos. And I said to him, well, that's a bit heavy for us to carry on a um, chopper because that was a 35 mil film in cans, you know. And um, so they had the, the job of getting a camera from six to four kilos. And then we had to design and build a helicopter to accommodate that four kilos in the front of it because it was obviously pointing in the front. And um, so we, we had, they then were still flying concept uh, 60 helicopters. And that, um, that has just uh, the whole gear train, everything is just one module. So you can sort of build off that. So we ended up designing a helicopter that could take the, um, the four kilo weight at the front. And, um, and then we started doing some film work. Uh, but, but, but then was no, uh, we didn't have pan and tilt on it um, at that stage. It was only, the camera was pointing forward and I had to turn the helicopter if you wanted to do a pan shot. Okay. Um, we did have um, downlink. So we had a through the lens um, camera that the director could see on his monitor so he could see what we were filming and um yeah we do that but it was extremely difficult yeah. um, so but, much easier know, now with drones oh yeah look we did but i mean it it w was fantastic because we got to go travel uh, overseas a few times and we did quite a few ads we did um i think one of the first ads for hyundai when they were still in their sort of infancy in australia we did hyundai ad we did um all sorts of uh, what did we do? Hyundai and um, and uh, a Ford ad. We did a Ford ad and um, what else? Uh, Ford. Oh, we did a tyre ad in um, Kuala Lumpur, and um, we did another one in Malaysia. Oh, I didn't go to that one, but John did. But they rang us up and said, "Oh, can you, they wanted a tobacco ad, and they wanted us to fly over tobacco fields and film this film star." I think, and uh, we said, "Yeah, no worries." So, what sort of the altitude there? And they said, "Oh." Um, a thousand, uh, we said uh, our sort of t our minimum, uh, maximum altitude is about a thousand feet. And they said, yeah, no worries, it's a thousand feet. But when they got there, it's three, it was a thousand metres. Oh, no. So um, uh, they say a hell of a job. Um, they had to hand launch the helicopter just to get enough um, to get some lift. And uh, they eventually did it. But, yeah, we, we, um, we did ads for HS uh, Channel 7. I nearly cut the armor Ben's head off. <laughs> that's okay. We did, um, yeah, we did a promo for Channel 7 and we're on the top of the Channel 7 building in, in uh, South Melbourne and we had to sort of fly in and come right up to her nose and, and while she was in the back of the, um, uh, up there on the back of the um, radio dish. And um, uh, something went wrong with the helicopter and I managed to land it and I thought, oh, God. You know, so we just, yeah, no, it's all right. Just a bit of a jiggle, you know. Oh, God, that could have gone disastrously wrong. Oh, no. But, um, yeah, we did a, a, a car ad down um, Western Australia, uh, West, uh, Western uh, Victoria, and um, and it was an imported car from Japan. They were doing a car ad, and um, and they wanted to do very hard things to do, like travel alongside the car sideways, oh, doing yeah. 30 kilometres an hour, you know, and, and pointed inside in the window. And um, that was, but anyway, we had one shot. We came up. I had to come up from behind, and and 
and and um, take a, a shot of the the woman that was sitting in the back seat, but the helicopter went straight through the back window. Oh no! And I think she was the um, number one star in Japan or something like that. So that went a bit horribly wrong. But, but that was only a couple of um, minor minor um, instances. But yeah, no, it was a great great time, and um, you know, got to see a lot of places, a lot of people. Did a couple of feature films, um, and you know we. Blocked. I think we did one for the four day. We had to block off the um, M81 or something, you know, and fly down the road up over the cars. Oh, the interesting, the first, I think the first one we did was Hyundai. Um, it was in the airport in Sydney, and they had a um, a trailer with a double deck trailer with the, all the new Hyundai cars. So they were coming towards me at about 40 or 50 kilometres an hour, and I had to go towards them at 30 or 40 kilometres an hour at sort of um, head height. And then just before they got to me, I had to go over the top. And take a shot of the cars, um, but this is all as I say. We had no, um, had no. It was no FPV or nothing like that. It was just sort of line of sight. So it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty. Um, it was pretty hectic. Yeah, very stressful. Nowadays, to go and film something, you know, like a lot of the stuff that you film, you have to get permits and stuff like that. Did, did you have to get permits to go and fly, or was it a bit you know, sort of more um, no, relaxed? No, it was. It was. It was more relaxed, and that's probably that's why we stopped because it was. Getting, harder and harder to get insurance because we always had insurance but it was getting harder the harder and in the end uh we decided to look it was just going to get too hard so we sort of um um gave the um gave the uh, the business away yeah we sort of all went our separate ways but yeah just just the fact that it was the safety because they they wanted yeah, they wanted to do ridic- ridiculous things that we just couldn't do you know for safety reasons they wanted you to fly around the corner and then come around the back and I mean, probably the, one of the best ads we did, we did a McDonald's ad. Did you ever see those McDonald's ads where the, that, um, the kid had his radio-controlled car and he'd yeah. go to McDonald's and order a hamburger and come back? Well, we mm. did one, but with helicopters. It was in Sydney. That was a week shoot. And uh, that was probably one of the most stressful ones. Uh, it was on in Sydney Harbour. And... Um, one of the shots was we. I had to fly into a, a boat shed, which was only about ten feet long, reasonably fast with a Concept Thirty. And then John Whistles was up the top, um, and he had to fly another helicopter, same, so, you know, look the same, but fly it out the window. Oh no! And then um, to make like he's flown in, he's gone upstairs and he's sort of flown out the window. But um, so it was pretty. It was pretty stressful that. When John was flying out the window, they had a, um, a you know, air cannon with filled with feathers and, and stuff like that, you know, to blow out the window to, to simulate. And then, but they pumped it up full of um, too much air and too much stuff. And as he flew out the window, it lost all lift and fell into the Sydney Harbour. Oh no! How yeah. many how many helis so, would you have to take with you on a shoot like that? Like, how, did you did you lose many? No, we had just purely the filming shoots. We only had two. We had a backup plus the main shooting film but um that sort of thing we only had um we only had two helicopters um for that particular mcdonald's one so we lost one so we only had one left to do the rest of it which we only needed one anyway as long as it kept going but but um one shot they wanted me to do was just impossible is come up um around shaft from below i had to hover over the shaft go down about six or seven feet but i only had about six inches um Clearing. Distance around the, yeah, you know, between the the wall and my blades, and um, I tried it. I just couldn't do it. You know, um, it was just way too difficult. Yeah, and then I had to come up and sort of fly out, but that was just uh, beyond beyond my abilities. 
But uh, yeah, no, it was a very good ad, that one. That was uh, probably one of our best ads. It's, uh, I'll tell you what, it, it, I reckon that most of the uh, modern day you know, professional drone pilots that are filming movies and stuff like that wouldn't be able to uh, do that. Even though some of them, I know that uh, one of the um, the big companies now is XM2 and a lot of those guys are ex-heli flyers that were pretty damn good. So maybe, but um, you know, with these drones now, it's, everything's become easier to, for filming. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, just night and day. Yeah, night and day. Because you just had to judge. You had to get used to judging where the cam- where the helicopter or where the, the camera what the camera was actually sh- pointing at yeah you know to get your shot so it was really um, um, took a lot of time to to get to um, to learn how to um, position the helicopter so you get the right right shot you know um, you could review your footage after you flame off the off the monitor you know because that was recorded but um, yeah so there might be quite uh, two or three takes or four or five takes to get the right angles. Um, yeah, so nowadays it's like FPV. You can just, just fly along, spin it around, point the camera wherever you like. So we didn't have that. We, but in the end, we did have um, tilt on it, but we never had pan because the camera was like four kilos. And back those days, the, the servos aren't nowhere near as good as what they are today. You know, on the maximum, probably six or seven kilos servos we were using, you know, but nowadays they're 49, 50, 70, 90 kilo servos. So uh, yeah, so it was, but that was pretty stressful, and that's probably after that was sort of thought, oh, I'll just give it a rest, you know. And so you um, you give it a rest, and then you say yeah. you drifted back in, and when you drifted back in, was it back to Helly's, or did you you go back to to fixed wing? No, well, I, I, the first thing I did build was an electric Helly um, MSH. Um, what do they call them now? The um, Protoss. Protoss of 50, uh, 50 or is it the 50, uh, 40, uh yeah, 40 size, yeah. 40 for whatever whatever size that is. But then then I bought, bought a, a Protoss uh, 700. Yeah. So I had those couple, but my mate Simon, who, um, yeah, he was always, he never gave it up. He sort of was still dabbling in it and um, thought it was a good idea to get into flying planes again. And um, so we sort of progressed again to, to um, starting to build planes. And flying planes. Were you pl- flying fixed wing back in the early days as well when you were flying helis, or was it just solely helis? No, no, no. I had a brace of fixed wings. I had you know all sorts of models and sportsters and and um, uh, sweet sticks and I had sailplanes and um, yeah, no, I still flew all that while I was flying um, helis. And because we do a lot of displays, I mean, every club you every club used to have an annual display, and we'd always go to sort of all the clubs around Melbourne and put on displays and stuff, and then either fly helis, and then after that we'll pull out the fixed wings and do the combats or the novelty events and stuff like that. So no, we kept they kept their hands in in um, flying fixed wing as well, yeah, because I did enjoy doing that as well. But it was yeah, ninety nine percent was heli. Yeah, so you come back, you get get back into helis. But you get into fixed wing, and now I know you as an IMAC pilot. You're back competing again. That's now. What was that journey yeah, I know. like? What? I know. It's in my, it's in my blood. Well, there's just some people <laughs> that gravitate towards it, uh, and you know, and there's some people that think that competition is bad, and there's others think it's okay. I think it's really good because I think it, you know, if you want to become a really proficient flyer, it's a great way, great pathway to go down. What led you into that aerobatic IMAC competition? Oh, I think again, just the same thing. Um, you know, I, I built quite uh, two or three aircraft, and I was a member at Varms, and we used to fly electric stuff down there. 
And then um, I bought a, I thought it was huge, an 88-inch uh, X-300, which I still have, with a DA50 in it. And uh, I used to fly that at the park. Obviously, that's not a really good idea. Um, but um, And then we had the, um, Stevie Melton, who you know very well. Yeah. Um, he, there was a come and try. He said, oh, look, you know, we've got to come and try day. Bring anything you like. Um, and um, have a go at iMac. And we thought, oh, we'll give it a go. You know, we're, we're bloody old, but, you know, we'll, um, we'll give it a crack. And um, I had my, idea, yeah, my uh, extra 300 there. And Simon had um, another, yeah, 88-inch, um, same thing. His was um, like a pilot kit. And, um, yeah, so we gave it a go and thought, oh, this isn't too bad. You know, we could sort of maybe do this. And then that's basically how we got into it. Oh, um, and I'll tell you what, you and Simon... Haven't looked back, have you? Planes got bigger, didn't they? No. Oh, well, yes, unfortunately for my bank balance. <laughs> the, um, yeah, they did. I mean, we, we say we go out the field now and go, what size is that plane? Is that like a 30-inch or 40-inch? No, no, it's a 60, you know, it's like 61 or two-metre plane. Um, but oh, I probably wouldn't buy a plane under, you know, definitely not under two metres. No, we're just... Um, just like the big models. I mean, they fly beautifully. They fly much better than a smaller model. And um, so uh, I, I, I went from my extra 300 and then I've now got my, well, what I compete with there was my Slick, Slick um, 540, an AJ Slick 540, which is 2.6 metre. And, um, uh, and the, probably the 2.6 has got the best power to weight ratio of the whole class. So that's probably the best model to, to fly. But now I've just gravitated now to some composites. So I've got a Krill. Extra 330SC, which has had its first, it's only had three flights, had had its um, checkout flight. And then, um, so that's the next thing on the board to, to fly that. But um, we just had the Echuca, uh State Championships last weekend. Yes, and uh, um, how did you go? You placed, didn't you? Yeah, I did, but come third. Did you beat Simon? It was very, very, yeah, I beat Simon. Oh, well, that's all right. As long as you beat Simon. <laughs> Yeah, it was a very close competition. I was 15 points behind second place. I think there was only a spread of 160 between first and fourth. Yeah, much. So a very, very close competition. Um, and now I've got enough um, promo points to um, go up to the next level. So Simon, it's all his fault. Everything he we do is his fault <laughs> because now he's taught me into flying into air. So we get next year we're starting to fly intermediate. Yeah. Now so, who's uh, who's your main who who who's your main competition now moving to intermediate? Um. Oh look, it, it, there's there's heaps because um, uh, there's a, there's probably the, the intermediate level now is probably has the most pilots, and we've we haven't um, even practiced the new because the schedule gets changed every year except for the last couple of years with the COVID, but uh, every year they do a, um, a, a sequence change, so we're going to now in the next couple of weeks start to learn the intermediate. So I mean we'll be last, second, last for. You know, for quite a while before we sort of get a handle on it. But uh, oh, look, it's just you do advance, you learn, um, you just sort of push yourself all the time, and that's the only way you sort of um, get better. I think is you just uh, keep pushing yourself. Well, I was speaking to other people that fly iMac, and they they say it's addictive. That okay, yeah, it is. You have a good look. I always someone asked me and said, "Are you going to the Atuka iMac event?" And I said, "No, I'd rather stay home and watch the paint dry because." I love iMac, but I don't think it's a great spectator sport for me to go and watch. Competing is a different, you know. I I would learn iMac routines as a point of practice, um, but um, yeah, th- trying to get that perfect flight is something that not many of us will ever ever achieve. 
oh, but keeps no, you know no. if if you've got that mindset where you just want to attain that skill, it's a great pathway to go down, really. Oh, it is right. It's it's not a spectator sport for sure. I mean, people people come out and have a look at it, and oh, yeah, that's good. Go away again, but it's only if you're competing and. And the IMAC guys are a great bunch of guys. I mean, um, you know, we travel Queensland, New South Wales, uh, Victoria. We haven't been to WA or South Australia. But, um, you know, they're a great bunch of guys. Um, it's a good weekend away. And 99% of us stay at the field. We've all got our own trailers and camp, camping. And it's just a great fun weekend to, to get together with people and fly. But you're right. It, it's that ultimate sort of precision flight that you can get you try and get every time, you know, which is, is near impossible. But, um, you know, you just do your best you can and then you go out and practice. That's why you'll probably see us out at um, and P and Darks and basically all we do is when we go out is practice. Um, and But we just enjoy it. We're all wired differently. And, and I, yes. I've talked a lot about how I get bored really easily. So I can't sit and fly circuits all day long and go, that was really, uh, you know, entertaining for me. So I will... Um, I went through a period where I found I was just I was I like doing aerobatics. Aerobatics is my thing, but I I wanted to put more structure into my flight. So that's where I learned an IMAC routine, even just the basic routine. And you yes, know, okay, the word says basic, but I challenge anybody to try to fly, fly the basic routine perfectly and position that plane exactly where it's supposed to go, and it becomes quite challenging. But I started flying this basic routine with anything, any model that I had whether it be yep. some tiny little underpowered thing, whatever. And I learned so much. And that was probably the best my flying ever got. I haven't been flying as much in, in recent years, but it was just that commitment to, and that scrutiny that I had of my own flying improved my flying to no end. You know, I got to that point where you could correct, um, you know, if you're, if you're a bit off offline with, say, just a basic loop, I instinctively could correct it, didn't have to think it, just my fingers knew what to do. And... Uh, it's something that I crave, actually. Just got to now that this COVID thing's over. Hopefully, we get flying a bit more. But um, but yeah, it's it's you know for anyone that wants to improve their flying, iMac is a good way. Pattern's good. F three A is good as well. But I think with the pattern planes, it's easier to fly precisely with a pattern plane because they're just so well designed <laughs> compared to you know a scale aerobatic plane, which. Uh, is not as good. You, you said you've got exactly. The, you said you got the AJ slick, and we don't see many AJ slicks. Um, the Andrew Jesky slick, no, uh, down here. I've got a three D hobby shop AJ slick, and I always say that the closest to that well, is it the, was built. By, it was built by. It was designed by him anyway. Yeah, exactly, and, and built in the same factory too, mind. You. Yeah. Um, and so, how how do you find that model? Actually, tell us well, a bit about it with the engines and servos and all that. Yeah, I, I, well, I've got a DLE 130 in that one. Um, I had a 120 and I changed it to DLE 130, got um, DLE um, canisters on it. Um, servos, well, I'm usually, I, I, we fly FR Sky, you know, some people, you know, I mean, as far as we're concerned, FR Sky has been good to us. So so we fly an FR Sky transmitters and all FR Sky um, RB20 um, box inside for all our survey connections. And, um uh, running uh, dual batteries, dual receivers, uh, so everything is redundant as we can. And um, and but I, I said actually I said to Simon the other I think we might have been at the the last time we were at Pear Oaks I said, boy this thing flies good. It's the best flying plane I've got. 
it's um, and it's a pity that um, they're not bringing importing at the moment because um, a mate of mine's got a laser as well, and uh, that flies equally as well, if not a little bit better, because the the slick was designed more of a three D aircraft. The uh, laser was more for uh, for IMAX flying, but no, it's 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 fantastic. And the servos we're all using, um, I, different brands, but they're all around about the 30, 35 kilos. So running um, two on the rudder, um, one in each elevator, and uh, just uh, two in each aileron. Yeah, yeah, I, I run electric shake because I'm lazy. Oh, that's okay. that's slack. <laughs> it yeah, is. Like, I'll tell you what, it's handy though. <laughs> oh, it's 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 good because uh, the DLE sort of stumbles a bit when you start it up, and I can go half choke, so that, that oh. that's good. So it warms up on half choke, and then I can turn it off. So I'm a fan of, um, you know, even though it's more to go wrong, I suppose. It, it, you know, keep it simple. But but uh, no, I love my electric choke, so I, I put a choke servo on um, my uh, three meter. Yeah, so. But uh, yeah, that's a lovely flying aircraft, and it's it's th that color scheme that they have with that sleek too, with their anniversary color scheme, is fantastic for visibility. It's probably one of the best uh, I've had for visibility: the, the yellow and the blue. Yeah, it is good. Well, what we need to do one day is uh, go out flying, and I, I want to bring my three D hobby shop AJ slick oh, and yes. compare yeah. it and it'll, see how how they line up because um, that, my three D hobby shop slick is it's a chunky plane, you know. And yeah, it, I, I always say that. Andrew Jeske's designs, um, like he loves a big turtle deck. You know, <laughs> he's stealing a few pattern sort yep. of lines um, from them. So you know, he's always always been a bit like that. But um, yeah, it does. I've seen photos of it, and it's a it's a great looking model. Now I've got to ask you about the DLE one thirty because I have seen one in Ch yep. when I was in China with in a in a one hundred four laser string flight, and um, the guys flying it said it was just crazy it was just so much fun did you notice that power increase straight away oh, yeah yeah well i mean originally i had the dle 120 in it and uh running the props that we're running so 28 2012 uh static um on the 120 used to do six thousand on the ground and um uh, instantly when i put the 130 with the falcon 2812 on six and a half thousand um, it's got some awesome power, yeah. Oh, but just vertical out of, out of out of sight, you know. It's just a fantastic engine. But oh, I mean, that's that my Slick's had probably I don't know, good two, three hundred, four hundred flights. Still as good as the day it was. Um, I, I put it in, you know. So it's an awesome engine. They're a little bit heavier, aren't they? Um, tiny bit heavier, not not a lot, but a tiny bit heavier. Yes, yes, they definitely are a little bit heavier, but it, it, sort of the plane doesn't notice it. I've a question for you, actually. Uh... Where have you got your rudder servos mounted in that plane? Ah, uh, well, the only thing with that slick is it's terribly nose heavy. So I, I've got the rudder servos down the back in the tail. Yeah, I was going to say that mine, um, I ended up putting my rudder servos in the middle of the plane and I should have put them in the rear because I've moved basically the receiver packs as far back as I can go. They're basically straddling the two rudder servos that I've got, and, and it balances okay. I'm, I'm pretty happy with yep. the, the CG point there, but, um, yeah, there's no more room really to get things back unless I invent some new yeah. ways to mount batteries in the plane further back. But, um, but yeah, those slicks I think sometimes can be a bit, no, a bit nosy. Well, yeah, I've got two uh, my two battery packs. They're actually behind the, the turtle deck. Yeah. Um, so they're far back as I can get them, and everything else is pushed to the back to get some uh, weight back. And IMAC flying to the CG is totally a bit different, maybe to if you're flying 3D and stuff like that. 
But um, but that's just where it suits the plane. I had one servo. Uh, oh no, sorry. I've got the the two tail servos down the back and everything pushed back. But I also have um, lead um, wire in the um, elevator tube. Oh, okay. So I've got another hundred, maybe hundred grams of um, hundred hundred twenty grams of um, lead in the uh, elevator tube as well, which is a great way to stick it. It's 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 good. It's good, good idea. Actually. But yeah, so it's very very. Um, very, very nose heavy. I don't, yeah, you look at it, I don't know why, but yes, it is. But um, but no, look, it flies beautifully. I know the DLE 130 in a Extreme Flight 104 laser was nose heavy and the guys ended up strapping uh, lead to the tail wheel. <laughs> it was, oh, it was, because yeah. it was just at an event and they were testing things out kind of thing. And so they're literally cable tying, you know, chunks of lead to try to get it a bit more. Um, a bit more, you know, weight, a bit more rear kind of thing. But um, they land the guy, hey, we need some more. And so they're trying to strap more and more lead. It didn't look oh, great. Yeah. But anyway, no. it did work. But um, it's so much so that uh, Sasha Ciccone from uh, from Italy, when he got uh, back to Italy, he, got, he bought uh, that combination, the DLE-130 and the uh, the laser, because he said it was just well, such right. a good plane. Yeah. Uh, the disappointing, uh, uh, the, the Extreme Flight laser is an awesome plane, but it's just like every man these dog has got one now. Any, anybody that's into aerobatics or iMac or freestyle, it just seems to have one of these lasers. I'm like, ah. Oh. Uh, it was a running joke on the weekend at Echuca because um, how many red yeah. <laughs> red laser? Uh, there was about five. Yeah, yeah, and that's I'm the, not another red laser. Yeah, well, it's funny to see the change in planes that IMAX scene that that um, composite dominated for many many years, and and Compaf was probably the dominant, followed by Krill, and yes. uh, now we've sort of seen the Compaf sort of die away a fair bit. I'd say Krill come back, um, but balsa planes, um, you know, anywhere from a three meter to like the hundred cc size, seems to be the predominant. Um, plane that we're seeing but um oh just keeps well, on I mean, they, well exactly right i mean they, they fly equally as well i've got nothing against them. i mean extreme flight laser flies beautifully you know it, it's um it's fantastic plane um i just like i mean i mean and they're easier to build you get a lot more equipment with them you know um you buy a composite and you get nothing you know um you're spending a, a bucket load of money and um but they, they i think they fear they don't even get instructions with a quill there's nothing. <clears throat> you get a body and that's it. But um, well, I figure if you're going to spend that much money and buy that sort of aircraft that you know how to build one. And uh, I, I had a goal on this three-metre quill because everybody says a quill is tail heavy. Um, and uh, you've got to add a heap of weight to the tail. But my new quill, um, I gutted everything. and everything. So my quill at the moment is slightly nose heavy without the pilot. I'm just putting back in. I've just had to make him a bit taller so he fits properly so he looks the correct height and um so i've got a test flight again with the the pilot in but i'm thinking it's pretty close but i don't know as many krills around flying that haven't got any sort of lead in the nose but um yeah i just gutted the whole lot and then started from scratch again but um so that was quite a big build uh, many well quite a few months so lucky we had covid but i fixed my um dg303 my four meter glider and um and um my x cub because so i've got 116 inch Hang a nine hex cub, which I love to fly to. Um, I, I, I like to fly anything. I mean, I'll fly, I love flying my glider, but after 10 minutes or so, I'm thinking, yeah, okay. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had enough of that sort of thing, go back to the planes. But um, 
But uh, yeah, I'll fly anything. I mean, I like it. I mean, I haven't got a jet yet, but it could be on the car. I, you know what? I, I always say all roads lead to jets. Um, <laughs> and 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 the way things are going, it's jet sales have been phenomenal. <laughs> so many people bought uh, bought jets or got into jets. But um, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing with jets in that you know if you're really into aerobatics and get that enjoyment of aerobatics, the jet is different in that. Yeah, uh, like you can fly aerobatics with them, but they're not very, not as nimble. You know, with when you, when you go and fly your slick, you know, yeah, it, it, the flight envelope is a lot broader than a jet. So a jet is is a good experience. But um, someone said to me once, "Oh, is that the best thing you've ever flown?" I said, "Well, it's another model plane. It's different, and I, I'm looking forward to making the most of that." type of model and flying that really nicely so that I put on a, a nice sort of show. That is my aim with that jet is to to fly yes. it well. But when you fly some of these are, you know, a purpose-built aerobatic prop plane, it's it's there's a lot more that you can do with them. Uh, and that's I need that stimulation to go, okay, I'm going to pop into a hover now and see what happens. And I'm going to do a knife edge pass now and do some knife edge circuits and see how I go and whatever. So there is something about I, I still think that my, my first love is um, aerobatic aeroplanes. And I love gliders, but, um, yeah, if I just want to get my thrills, I'm going to go and fly a you know, large-scale aerobatic model. Makes, well, we're probably, the, we're probably the worst. Uh, sorry, yeah, exactly. We're probably the worst. I mean, Simon's probably the worst um, glider pilot in the world because um, we used to get um, the hammered a bit at uh, Barnes. Why are you flying so fast? Because <laughs> we like it, <laughs> you know. I mean, I've got a warm liner, and um, you know, I like to buzz the field, and you know, do low inverted passes, and well, that's not really what gliders are supposed. Yeah, but it's fun. Yeah. No, that's, but, um, that's yeah. true. Well, that's why I like the idea of um the F five J gliders, where they've got the ten minute working time, like the competition, yes. because yes. I'm not going to get bored in ten minutes, and I'll be preoccupied thinking about everything, keeping the glider up, and then my landing and planning, and I, I like that. Um, like all that sort of involvement where you've got that time limit and you're working towards that time limit. But um I do love scale gliders though. I think they're they're um Oh yes, they're yes, a great they're looking thing. It's just something about gliders. It's it's single seater things I just love. I just think they're just Yeah, they're, and they're majestic. Yeah, yeah. When we uh you know we have those guys down at Packenham that fly um Tim Morland and his mate and watching them do their glider tugs and Actually, I put a I put a, a video up that I that I found on my phone of um, Tim Moore and sort of buzzing the strip, you know, watching off some speed, doing a low pass before turning around and coming back in, and the the noise off this glider was just that that whooshing sound. And oh, I actually, I said to my son, "Listen to that." It goes, "Has that got an engine?" I said, "Nah, that is just pure <laughs> wind going over that airframe." And um, yeah, that gets my juices flowing. Oh, that's what I love too. Just doing that low, fast pass and hearing that uh, wind whistle pass on the wind. You know, yeah, it's it's just it's great. As I say, I'll, I mean, I'll tackle anything, but um, um but you know, I, as I say, I'll do anything. I mean, I'm not just stuck to one thing, but but it's up to yeah, whatever people like to do. You know, yeah, it's um, what as I say, yeah, my, I max my passion at the moment. Might change in a couple of years, but. <laughs> You're still involved, though, and that's the thing. What is what do you think has kept you going with with with, with flying model model aircraft for so long? Um, well, gee, I'd be sitting at home doing nothing. I didn't do that. I think um, it's just I just get enjoyment out of it. You know, I mean, it's always a, it could be a challenge. I mean, 
it keeps your mind active. You know, I'm always we're always thinking of different ways to do, do things. Um, you know, invent things. I mean, Simon's new one. I'll hopefully, we'll get it out this weekend. His gear drive set up for his big three meter model. That'll be interesting to, to see if that if that works well. Um, but we're we just like um, and it's the, and it's the um, the company as well. You know, we just like to get out there and have a nap and matter and um, and talk. You know, talk rubbish. And uh, it's it's just the involvement in the whole thing. I think it's just it's it's great. It's it's a great hobby. I think it is as well. Well, of course, I'm going to say that. But yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I always say yeah. it keeps you mentally active, socially active, and even physically active. Because um, I don't know about you, when, when I'm pretty buggered after working on a, a model for a day, oh, like my legs are t- sore and been bending over trying to get into gaps and that kind of thing. So I think it's oh, a, yeah. It's 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 yeah, and it's one of those it's one of those hobbies that it's, it is all encompassing. That you know, I was I was talking to someone the other day, and I was sending messages or having a chat. I can't remember who it was, and I said, oh, I don't, I'm not getting out flying that often. I'm really busy with work, and you know, I've been having to work on weekends to catch up and all that kind of stuff. So I haven't had the opportunity to go to the field. But I said, I suppose every week, I I practice my aero modeling through this podcast, through talking to people about it, and yes. and and you know. We all know that we go to a flying club and we spend more time talking than actually flying. And so oh, I'm just oh, doing the yes, talking bit without the flying. So it's, <laughs> but it's, um, but it's part, it's part of it. And there's people who think that, oh, it's terrible. You know, the old guys come to the field and they don't even fly. Yeah. So what? They're, they're, it's, a, it's a social club. <laughs> They've come to have a chat exactly with their mates. Right. And you know what? They've probably done that many flights in their time that they probably don't really need to do another one. So they're just coming to have a chat with their mates, which is, um, which is, which is, and I think that's why, you know, things like competition and iMac events that are, you know, a weekend away. Um, yes. And do you, do you find after a weekend away that Monday you're, you're buzzing, you know, from, from the great oh, weekend? Yeah. Well, I'm buzzing and, and tired. Yeah. <laughs> Both, you know, but, um, but, but as you say, it's like we live and breathe that um, I'll, I'll say to Simon or somebody, or, you know, I was brushing my teeth the other night and what about we do, we'll try this. And, you know, I'm lying in bed and, and Simon will do the same thing. You know, I was lying in bed the other night, what about we try this, you know? And it's just all encompassing sort of thing. It's, it's you live and breathe it. Uh, and if you enjoy it, it continues. Yeah. But, um, you know, we'll never, um, we'll never stop trying to better ourselves. And, uh, and come up with new, new 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 tricks we can do, you know, ways to 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 build a model. You know, oh, we'll put this there, we'll put that there, we'll do this, we'll do that. You know, we're always sort of chatting about um, improving the models and improving our flying. You know, uh, it's good. Like uh, you, you've talked about Simon Simon Ventvogel, who who's been on the podcast. So if anybody wants to listen yes. to the uh, the podcast recording with Simon Ventvogel, just go back into the Flat Out RC podcast listen. You'll yeah, you'll see uh, that. I I think it, it's special when you can share that hobby with a good mate, isn't it? Yeah, because he's the, he's the thinker, yeah. he's the thinker, and I'm the doer. So yeah, what do you want to do? Yeah, okay, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. No, he's he's got a fantastic brain, and he comes up with all these ingenious ideas. So um, and we're very good mates. And as I say, I call for him, he calls for me in the, the IMAC comps, and um, and you know we catch up when we can get out the field a couple of days a week or something. So it's um, and we're, we've got the same models as well now, but uh, the, the the quills. But um, yeah, no, we just—it's just an enjoyable sport. I would—I couldn't think of it doing anything else. Well, see, I, look, I've got a question here which I, I wrote, and I thought I should—I should make this a standard question because I've got, a, you know, two standard questions that I asked. That the first question and the last question in this podcast. But I've got this in question fifteen here. If you weren't flying model planes, what else would you be doing? You said you'd be doing nothing. Oh yeah. Well, I'd probably find something to do because I've never ever 
uh, sit around twiddling my thumbs. But um, but oh, what would I be doing? Gee, you know, I went through you know cars and uh, computers, and um, oh, I just can't think of anything else to do. Really, you know, I couldn't um, couldn't think of not not flying actually. So, um, well, are you reti- you're retired now from work, aren't you? Yeah, I retired uh, five years ago. Yeah. Got out a bit early, but I'm I'm 67, so I, I figured I've got to get get into it pretty quick. You know, I've got to make the, the time, most of the time. What's interesting is I've always I always say this is another thing I say a lot of things repeat myself a lot, but uh, I think it's one of the best retirement hobbies you can have. I, I I can't wait to be retired so that I can just go fly. Like I literally sit there and you know touch wood I I make it to that age which I'm planning on. Yeah, but uh, that hope so. Uh, so do I, but. Um, I I just look forward to it and just think, oh, imagine the time now that I'll be able to go to the field during the week. You know, if the weather's good, just go to the field. Uh, like that yeah. to me is is something that I I put on the on the mantelpiece and stare at that I'll be able to do that. And I I envy those guys, but I know my time will come. But yep. um, yeah, get out. Look, it's it's funny. My my dad, he's a bit older than you, but he he retired at a similar age as you the first time before he went back to work because he got bored. But he found golf when he finally retired, and yes. our golf is going to the flying club, you know, and flying our model exactly. planes. Uh, but the only thing is, we can keep on practicing it away from the field as well. Where you know, my dad can play golf at the golf club, but he's not really doing anything at home. Where we can get in the shed and build a model or that kind of thing. Do you, do you, do you like building models or find it a bit tedious? Oh yeah, I, no, no, I love building models. No, no, I enjoy it. I don't see Simon will do a he'll go. I've got an idea for this model, so. He'll scratch build one, and you know a couple of months later he's got a new model. Um, I'm not a scratch builder. I'll build off plans. I've built quite a few you know uh, models off plans, you know, uh, completely. But um, no, I'm more of a you know buy a kit and build. No, but I love um, I love building. As I say, I've probably the quill quills probably set me back. Oh, I don't know, three or four hundred hours or something, maybe. Really. And, um, Jeez, is it that much? Yeah, to- yeah, oh, it's, it's a lot of work. My mate Edo Sega built a krill in um, a day in yeah. China. Oh, yeah. But you, but you, but he had to do a demo flight there, and they said they said, "Oh, yeah, the plane's all oh, ready really? to go." Yeah, it wasn't ready to go. He had to. Um, he said, "Andrew, you've never seen so much sticky tape inside a plane." He had stuck things <laughs> down all over the place. It literally was like half a day to try to cobble this plane together. And he said never. He was so angry. And he said never again. He said if anybody looked inside of that plane, it was a mess, absolute mess. Yeah. And he was he was embarrassed about it. But he said I couldn't do anything. And there were two of them trying to put this thing together. And I'm thinking that's just uh, that is just crazy time, absolutely crazy. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm a bit fanatical about that. But we. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna invest in something like that, you want it to look nice and neat, wouldn't you? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. You're gonna make you're gonna anything. make that effort. Yeah, I try not to do anything half-hearted. I mean, you got to make the effort. So, as I say, that's why this one I just gutted it completely and um, and um, lost a, quite a bit of weight gutting it and um, and rebuilt it the way I wanted to build it. So, um, but yeah, no, I enjoy. I mean, I'm out there probably two or three nights a week, four or five hours till 10, 11, 12 o'clock some nights. In the garage, you know, I've just got a the new um, new X twenty S radio from FR Sky, so that's that um, um, whiz bang new one they've got out with the touch screen and um, and uh, Ethos radio control system in it. So that's another thing that I've got to work on now. So that's um, something that will come up in the next month or so. Can you move your models and your old transmitter across? 
Uh, no, unfortunately. You, um, you know, you've got to recreate new models, um, which is a bit of a pain, but it makes it, but Ethos is fairly easy to, to use, so it shouldn't be too too much trouble. But no, so it's always something new coming on, as I say, got that new transmitter and um, got the new krill happening, and, um, and it's always something happening. That's true. I've got my, uh, oh, and as I say, you've got the X cub now. I fixed that up and I can tow gliders with it. I've done some towing. Mm. Uh, towing. Yeah, so I, I love all sorts of um, model flying, you know, whether it be iMac or just general. Don't do a lot of general flying, but um, but I do enjoy it when we get out there and just, ah, oh, I'm not going to take the, the iMac out. I'll take something out today and just enjoy, you know, just enjoy yeah. um, general flying, you know. Yeah, it's a good thing to Which do. Which is good too. I mean, I'm not into 3D. Unfortunately, I'm too old now. I'm not into 3D. But um, I do have the, the flight sim. So now, and, and as one of the advantages with the flight sim is now we can go away and practice and you schedule um, for next year on the flight sim as well as um, trying it for real. So I've never done inverted 90-degree roll. Interesting. Yeah, good luck with that one. That's, yeah. That, but this is what I say is I'm a big fan of the simulator, a big, big fan. And and there, yeah. everybody that I know, especially in that freestyle aerobatics, the, uh, the 3D heli flying, whatever, they spend a lot of time on the simulator training their brain. And as my good mate Edo said, your brain doesn't know the difference. Right? If, if The left stick is the left stick and the right stick is the right stick. And when you move them, that's all your brain sort of knows. And so like he, when he won the 2011 European Extreme Flying Championships, 80% of his practice was on the sim because he couldn't get out to the flying field that often. And, um, okay. And yeah. so, you know, I get on the sim with uh, Brad Worm, who you may have competed against, and, uh, and you know, yes. he yes, asked me yesterday. Fantastic flyer. I know he'd be listening to me, Wormy. I'm sorry I can't get on the sim. I, I, I said to him, he said, uh, sim, question mark. And I said, Wormy, I've got so much work on at the moment. All I'm doing is work. That's just my life at the moment. Just uh, try – it's this post-COVID uh, – situation where companies have woken up and i'm busy which is good but uh i just want to go flying and get on the sim and yeah. stuff but but yeah big big fan of the sim especially like you said learning new sequences you can sort of learn the flow of the sequence at least on the simulator before taking it to the field so you've got a bit of a head start so yeah um great yeah no, i'll definitely be uh practicing well mainly the um moment inverted uh 90 degree rolling turn um I'll definitely be practicing that because there's no way I'm going to go out there and, and risk my model uh, without at first practicing on that because you can crash as many times as you like. You know? But as you say, it's just getting the flow of the manoeuvre and the correct control. And you just got to, um, it's got to be intuitive in the end. You don't have to think about it. So, uh, but we're yeah, looking forward to next year. It's going to be really um, interesting. Another challenge. I think everyone's looking for, look forward to 2022 to leave the past two years behind us and uh, there's, this, oh. there's this level of confidence in the air I think uh, that we've got you know so which which is good you know and so I, I just, I'm just looking forward to getting back to some events you know and taking some new photos yes. and yeah. shooting some yeah. videos and doing all that kind of stuff but uh, it will happen we're almost there well I mean everybody um, I mean COVID was good because I mean you could repair all your models and build new ones while you couldn't fly so that, that was an advantage in that respect anyway I've still got I've still got some models to maiden from COVID period, so um I can't oh, I, I, yeah. I, I haven't had an opportunity to go out flying. It sounds terrible, but anyway, but I will. I, I, I'm tempted maybe this weekend, depending on the weather, because you know we've had bad weather down here as well, which hasn't helped. Um, no, on weekends that is when I can go out flying. So, but anyway, now this yeah. final question could be a tricky one, and it's a question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to. And um, you know, it's it's it, it's it's often a question that stumps a lot of people because. 
you know, we can get someone like Norm Morris will give me these top three models and then we'll get people will give me uh, models from, you know, their favourite models in different categories. But, you know, for all those avid listeners, I don't know what this question is. And this question is, what has been your all-time favourite model? And this could be heli or fixed wing in your situation. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Um, my One of my all-time favourite models probably in helis is my um, Heim Bell Triple Two. With the retractable undercarriage, that was a lovely flying aircraft. Not competition-wise, but just just a nice flying aircraft that looks good. And um, but that was probably one of my favourite helis. And um, I don't know. I'm hoping that um, my favourite plane. I don't really have one at the moment. Uh, but I'm hoping my new three-meter quill is going to be my favourite plane. We'll see. <laughs> there you go. I'll tell you what I yeah. my. Having a look at some of your photos on your Facebook page, I absolutely love Jet Ranger bodies. I just think that's the best looking heli yes. ever ever developed was the uh, the Bell Jet Ranger, and I just look at them and any any Jet Ranger, I just look at them and go, "Oh, that's awesome! I really like that." But as you said, that model didn't wasn't that reliable, was it? No, no, no. that's right. Oh yes, the the, um, the car show with the jet range body, but that was a plastic body. That wasn't very nice. Yeah. And probably my second most was my I had a miniature aircraft XL sixty with um, a long ranger body. Oh yeah, and uh, that I spent ages on the colour scheme on that on the painting and that that was probably yeah probably in fact they'd be equal because that was a beautiful looking model. It flew fantastic. The mechanics were good, um, and it was fairly scale. And yeah, so that's probably one of my favourite as well. That XL, I remember when the XL helis were around, and um, gee, they were popular, weren't they? weren't they? They're like the the go. Oh, they helis. were. Well, Max uh, Max Tandy was the importer for um, miniature aircraft back then, so he was um, um, he was importing the XL. But they were great, Hello, Yeah, they were great. They're very innovative for their time as well. I think they're one of the first that sort of had a slipper clutch. Yeah. Because back back then when we were flying, even in the world champs, we never had slipper clutches. So when you're doing auto rotation, you know, you didn't have control of the tail. Um, so it would just wear the vane around. So hopefully it was better if you had a bit of wind so the tail stays straight. But with the slipper clutches, you can control the, the tail in the turn. Um, and they were probably one of the first that had a slipper clutch in them. They were very inventive for their day. They had a horseshoe muffler that was inside in, – yeah, was inside the frame. It was very compact. Uh, very, very good helicopter. Yeah, I just remember yeah. seeing them. Again. Very, very good helicopter. Reading magazines, you know, it was my childhood, and uh, seeing those XL helis were just, you know, and then you'd see the competition results, and it was like XL helis everywhere. And yeah, those those were yeah. the days. Anyway, Rob, it's oh, been they were. Rob, it's been a pleasure having you on the uh, on the Flatted RC podcast. Uh, you know, Simon Ventvogel is to blame. He said. You got to talk to Rob because Rob was a gun heli pilot, and and you were, and you potentially still could be. You know, you've got to get back at that. I want to see you fly the heli once down down a pack, and then we'll we'll, we'll get. Yeah, well, there. I was almost going to um, I was almost going to go up to um, Gav Sexton the other day. He was flying a nitro machine, so mate, you fly my one. Can I have a go? Yeah, you should. You should. <laughs> I should. I should it, it, say to him, "Do you know who I am?" I was like, you know, I was pretty good in my day. You know, unlike you, Gav. well. Well, it was funny. Well, just story. It was funny. Uh, Steve Melton was out there with um, Ash Murrow, and he was flying um, uh, fifty size a nitro heli, and he was practicing auto rotations. And um, not, now, I hadn't picked up a helicopter for like 
haven't done an auto rotation for 20 years or something. And Steve goes, oh, do you want to try auto? I said, what, with with uh, Ash's model? He said, yeah, have a go. So I did a few, well, 12 months ago, my first auto rotation in 20 years. Got it down all right. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, but no, I, I um, it's still there. I mean, you never lose. No, you never lose. No, you'd you have it. It'd be ingrained um, in your fingers just now. Just in but, your blood. Yeah. Well, Rob. Exactly. Thanks yeah. once again for joining no me. And uh, we'll see you down the field. Well, I hope to see you soon. Yes, so do I. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Andrew. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. And I think it's been a good one. I... I, I it was good to have a chat with Rob, so big thanks for Rob Barbudo for, for joining me. Uh, always good to talk to people that have been in the hobby for a long time. They've just got so much to say, and it's just a learning experience every time I talk to these kind of guys. So a big thank you to Rob. Really appreciate him spending time with me. And and I really appreciate you spending your time listening to this podcast. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast. Leave us a nice review if you like it. That might help us increase the numbers even though the numbers are going up which is it's it's not i don't look at the numbers every week but it's always um it's nice to see that people are listening to the podcast rather than just me after i edit it so big thank you to all of you from around the world for joining me because i do know that there are people in the us high over the us and the uk south america as well thanks for joining us and of course my home country of australia bunch of legends I'll be back next week. Not sure who I'm going to be talking to next week. I'll work out something. Anyway, talk to you then. Bonnie and Clyde, a classic cliche. We're on the run. This is what we waited for.